Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. In October, a U.S. federal judge ruled for the government in an antitrust suit to block a $2 billion deal for Penguin Random House to acquire Big Five rival Simon & Schuster. In the months since then, PRH's U.S.-based executive team has lost key members. This week, Andrew, the world's largest English-language general trade book publisher, unveiled a new leadership structure. Yeah. So as we know, uh, Penguin Random House Global CEO Marcus Dole and their U.S. CEO Madeline McIntosh both stepped down from their posts after a federal court blocked Penguin Random House's bid to acquire Simon & Schuster. And this week we learned uh, that Madeline McIntosh's posts will actually be eliminated in a corporate reorganization of Penguin Random House's U.S. division. Uh, and the highlight of the plan is that the, the Random House Publishing Group is going to be split back into two groups – recreating the Crown Publishing Group, albeit with some significant differences from its prior iteration. Uh, and our listeners may know that Crown was actually folded into a Random House Publishing Group just a few years ago, back in 2017, I believe. Anyway, it's a whole new structure. Congratulations are in order for Sanyu Dillon, who was previously Chief Marketing Officer for Penguin Random House, who will now be president of the Random House Group, and to David Drake, who's been promoted to be president of the Crown Group. Both will report to Nihar Malavia, the interim CEO of Penguin Random House. And I will note that interim title on Malavia's title there, which I expect is going to be dropped at some point soon, as it sure seems to me that you don't uh, let an interim leader overhaul your U.S. operations. So I think we can expect news at some point that uh, Malavia's interim title is going to change to permanent. But again, the key change here is that the new structure does not include a replacement for Madeline McIntosh as Penguin Random House U.S. CEO. Instead, we've got uh, Dylan and Drake, along with a long host of division heads. Uh, there are actually a lot of promotions here. You can read about all of them on the PW site. But all of these division heads are going to be reporting directly to uh, Niara Malavia. What do PRH officials say is behind the changes, Andrew? And what's your take? Yeah, so, so Penguin Random House officials say the addition of a new adult publishing group is intended to revive competition among its imprints and to provide more, and I'll quote them here, touch points uh, for agents to meet PRH editors. And I think that's actually a pretty shrewd move because, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Simon & Schuster is going to be bought by someone, uh, just not by Penguin Random House. So with this move, Penguin Random House sort of you know, throws another hat into the ring when it comes to acquiring big books, shall we say. And it does address one of the court's key concerns with Penguin Random House as the largest of the big five publishers by a mile. And why that's so interesting is because Penguin Random House argued at trial that there already was robust internal competition for books at Penguin Random House. And what this change, what this reorganization says, is that maybe that internal competition could be more robust. And I think agents and authors certainly have to be happy about this change, especially if that's the outcome, uh, because robust competition means higher advances. In announcing the changes to the PRH staff, Malavia said the ability of Penguin Random House editors to aggressively pursue uh, the works they're most passionate about and the autonomy and independence of the divisions and imprints is what drives the business. Again, I think that's a pretty good take. So 
it all sounds good. I guess we'll just see what happens. You know, I certainly don't question the need for uh, Mr. Malavia to make changes in what is really sort of an uncertain time in the book business with a lot of challenges on the horizon. And of course, as he gets his own read on who and what is going to work for the organization in the future. Uh, that said, I think there's a history of these kind of power sharing structures being, I don't know, difficult to maintain. I mean, it's, it's not like it's going to be Game of Thrones or anything, but when you set up a competition, what you usually get is a winner. And often in these situations, one player will outperform the other and eventually more changes uh, will come to reflect that reality. But, you know, we'll have to see how this goes. As it is now set up, this new corporate structure, I think, is smart because it certainly will incentivize Penguin Random House internally, their editors internally, to compete harder. And frankly, in the wake of having its Simon & Schuster vision, its, you know, massive merger blown up by the courts – I think it's a very smart move to give the company a new future to pursue. In late February, Andrew, the American Booksellers Association held its first in-person winter institute since the COVID-19 pandemic began in 2020. So how did that go? Well, by all accounts, it was a tremendous success. And I think not just for the ABA, which congrats to, to them, they pulled off an excellent event, but really for all of us in the industry, because I think, you know, here we are early in 2023 and this show suggests that this is a year which we, in which we could really finally push through to the other side of the pandemic, where we could start to see something that resembles our pre-pandemic publishing lives. Uh, ABA CEO, Allison Hill said that the 2023 event, which ran from February 20th to the 23rd in Seattle, was in fact the biggest Winter Institute yet, with some 1,600 total attendees, over 900 booksellers. Uh, And among those attendees was a great team of PW reporters who filed a lot of great stories. Seriously, there's like 20 headlines from the show, and you can read them all on the PW site. And I have to say, looking at the program, it really was a meaty program with several themes, ranging from diversity, equity, and, and inclusion issues to accessibility and censorship. Uh, and other existential threats to the bookselling community. And of course, there was a lot of sharing of expertise on subjects like financial literacy and you know, social media and social media analytics. Uh, and also, as you would expect from the ABA, a very pointed focus on combating the influence of Amazon. In fact, in the conference's opening keynote, Stacey Mitchell, who's the co-executive director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, was joined by author Cory Doctorow, who is the author of uh, his a new book called Chokepoint Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Captured Creative Labor Markets and How We'll Win Them Back. And no surprise, the two discussed how Amazon locks in customers. Uh, and really, they both sort of concluded that legislative action really is going to be needed here. So you can check that out on the PW site. There's a write-up of the event. There was news, too, from the event. Uh, Bookshop.org founder Andy Hunter revealed that the company actually plans to begin beta testing a new ebook service for indie booksellers later this year, which, if all goes according to plan, might actually help indies compete with Amazon, right? It actually recapture some of the sales in the digital space that they've been losing to Amazon. Uh, and aside from the roughly 900 booksellers who attended the Winter Institute, one of the largest groups represented there was independent publishers. The Independent Publisher Caucus held its three-hour annual meeting during the conference, and high on the agenda there was the question of how to make books from indie presses more discoverable. Again, it's on the PW site. You can read all about it there. Uh, and I guess this is a good time to say, yeah, go check out the PW site. And I'll note, too, that there really was a real sense of community 
and sort of happiness. You could see it in the stories that were filed. People were just really happy to be back together in person again. And we'll look to see if that sense of happiness and you know wanting to be together comes through through the rest of the year. You've got the London Book Fair upcoming uh, next month. And of course, we have ALA in June in Chicago. Is this the year that publishing conferences truly come back? And what I'm seeing is there there really is a real hunger for this among the profession, among attendees. And if the economy, the virus and public health uh, policies cooperate, I do think that we could see a real bounce back uh, this year for publishing trade shows. But for now, let me just say again, congrats to the ABA for hosting, hosting a really strong Winter Institute in Seattle. A federal judge has set oral arguments for summary judgment in the copyright infringement case brought by publishers against the Internet Archive over the scanning and lending of library books. The hearing is now set for March 20. Yeah, and we're going to have a preview of those arguments in the coming days, but I think that this is probably a pretty big moment in the case with pretty major implications, and it comes some four months after a final round of reply briefs was filed last October, and more than two years since four major publishers, uh, that would be Hachette, HarperCollins, Wiley, and Penguin Random House, organized by the Association of American Publishers, first filed this copyright infringement lawsuit alleging that the Internet Archives programmed to scan and lend library books under an untested legal theory known as controlled digital lending is, in fact, nothing more than a massive piracy operation masquerading as a not-for-profit library. So what does this oral argument mean? Well, basically, there is now a chance that this case could be decided before trial uh, based on the evidence we've gathered thus far. Now, a number of industry observers tell me that they believe the case is going to go to trial, that no one side will actually prevail at the summary judgment stage. But I'm actually not so sure, because it certainly seems to me that there are not a lot of real factual disputes at issue here, right? Everyone is pretty clear on what's going on here in terms of conduct. It really does seem to me that the key questions before the court are questions of law. You know, basically, is this conduct legal? Is it legal to turn a print library book into a digital format and then to lend that digital edition like you would lend the print book? And, you know, I point out too that neither party in their filings has suggested that there should be fair use tests on the 127 works included in the suit. And remember, that's kind of what happened in the Georgia State University E-Reserves case. Uh, essentially, we had a bunch of individual fair use tests. But this argument, as it's now set out, appears to be very much big picture about the program to scan and lend library, library books. So again, to me, that sort of paves the way for this case to actually be decided at the summary judgment stage. That said, there are some potentially key factual disputes at hand, right? For example, whether there's harm to the publishers from the IA's lending activity, whether the Internet Archive actually follows the rules it sets for itself for controlled digital lending. And our users will remember the National Emergency Library, where the Internet Archive just took the rules off of these books and lend them out to simultaneous users. Well, it's hard to say you have controlled digital lending if you can take the controls off anytime you want. So I think that's going to be a part of this case as well. I know the publishers are suing over the National Emergency Library as well. But, you know, if we're arguing about, you know, whether the Internet Archive is doing CDL right, control digital lending right, I'm guessing that's probably not where the publishers want to be because the publishers are arguing that 
controlled digital lending is simply not legal. So like I said, we don't want to get into the argument or the publishers don't want to get into the argument of whether or not they're doing controlled digital lending right because they think controlled digital lending is wrong. Uh, having read the briefs from both sides, and there are a bunch of them, as well as 13 or 14 amicus briefs that have been filed in the case, uh, and having actually been in Judge Kodal's courtroom in the past and knowing his res- reputation for asking tough questions, I'm expecting a pretty fascinating argument here. Or not. And I say or not because in their briefs, both sides have laid out their read on the law and they frame their cases pretty well. But I just don't know how like a any judge, uh, including a no-nonsense jurist like Judge Kodal, is going to see things. It could actually be a very open and shut case. Uh, I just can't say at this point. The argument looks fascinating as it's laid out, just may not be a very tough case on the law. In their briefs, attorneys for the publishing plaintiffs say that the undisputed facts and settled law lead to the, quote, inexorable conclusion that the scanning and lending of library books is copyright infringement and on a massive scale. You know, they say the Internet Archive is not a library, right? They're a commercial actor. They call controlled digital lending a cynical branding exercise uh, to cover up what is they say is industrial scale copyright infringement, all of which competes with what they characterize as a thriving licensed access library ebook market. The law is clear, they say. Publishers have the right to license these digital editions to their books. End of story. On the other hand, the Internet Archive insists that they're not creating bootleg copies, that they're not infringing copyrights. They're just using technology to provide access to the print books they've already bought and owned and are allowed to lend. This case to them is about how libraries lend their books, not creating competing products or getting uh, something for nothing. Look, if the library owns the print book and it's available to lend, what difference does it make whether the reader actually comes to the library to pick up the actual print book or whether they look at a picture of that book as long as it's controlled? That's sort of the argument that the Internet Archive is making here. A librarian could mail the book, right? A librarian could read the book over the phone to a patron. What this really is about is using the Internet to be more efficient and getting access to print books. The IE lawyers say the case is less about uh, creating new products or bootlegging products. It's more about the selection of books and what's going to be available from libraries, whether they will be digital. These digital editions will be chosen by librarians and made available by, by librarians, or whether this is going to be determined entirely by publishers and their quote, unilateral and unreviewable licensing choices. So as you can see, as presented, it's kind of a fascinating and complex question. On the law, however, maybe it isn't so complex. In any case, we're going to have much more to talk about after the argument, which is now set for March 20th. So stay tuned. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program today with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, for publishers, the perfect data party is where you can remember everyone's name what they do, what they like, and what content they engage with. A customer data platform, or CDP, collects customer data into a single place, making it easier for publishers to attract and retain readers. John Chalice is Senior Vice President of Business Development with HUM, a next-generation CDP built expressly for scholarly publishers. I asked him what publishers should tell their audiences about data collection efforts when it comes to creating customer data platforms? Uh, well, the short answer is everything. Uh, so 
you know, one of the things that scholarly publishers have as an asset is trust. People trust member associations and, and, and publishers to do the right thing, uh, certainly scholarly publishers to do the right thing. And the right thing is to let people know what you're doing. I think third-party data uh, and targeting cookies and tracking cookies that allow uh, people to do off-platform advertising and retargeting and stuff like that, those have been overused and, and, and used in bad ways and they've, they've given people a bad, uh, they've given those industries sort of a bad reputation. We're not talking about that. And I think if you, if you say to people, hey, we're going to watch what you're uh, interested in and we're going to learn more about your formats and we're going to use uh, your first party data, that is the data we see, we, we, we catch from you interacting with our platforms to improve what we offer to you, uh, then pe most people will say, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on that. Invitation to a CDP data party. Next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts. And please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.